Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin, and how did they end? Let's find out on this episode of Fan of History. Hello, Dan. Hello, Bernie. Here we are. Here we are, back with our old buddy Nebuchadnezzar II, who has to claim to be the main character in our story right now. Yeah, but we lost Until a lot. Until Cyrus takes over. Until. And I found out, I kept thinking, like, why, why? I feel like I should be saying more about Nebuchadnezzar, but I, I was reading the other day and I realized that we lost a lot of the, the, the records. We have, from Nebuchadnezzar, we have years 0 to 11, we have that. We have the records from Babylon and stuff, but from years 12 to 43, missing. All we have is, like, temple inscriptions and building inscriptions and stuff like that. So let's start with something that's just a byproduct of Nebuchadnezzar. Perfect. Let's start uh, with the last gasps of Jerusalem. Okay. And this guy called Gedaliah or Gedaliah or Gedalia. He has many different names in different sources. Okay. Uh, He is uh, an administrator put into place by Nebuchadnezzar as governor of Jehud province, which means Jerusalem and the area around it. So... All the important Jews are taken into captivity in Babylon. And this guy is supported by a Chaldean guard. And he has to um, administrate the area. Is he, Jew- is he, a, Ju- is he a Juden? Judean? Or is he a Babylonian? Do we know? I am not sure. I don't think we know. Okay. Well, I think he's a Jew, actually. Yeah, yeah. Probably. Yes. The name sounds like it. And he's... Uh, Put in charge of sort of reconstructing or doing something useful with the area. Yeah. After Nebuchadnezzar's wreaked so much destruction on it. But he has the problem that people uh, are afraid that Nebuchadnezzar will come back and uh, wreck everything again. So he is uh, trying to cultivate the fields and vineyards and like put up stuff again and be a good vassal of Nebuchadnezzar. Mm-hmm. But uh, Ishmael the son of Nathaniah and his ten lackeys, they murder him. Ugh, I just can't get it right over there. 
and a lot of other Jews who actually who tried to rebuild under Nebuchadnezzar's rule. And then the the Jews left in Jerusalem and its vicinities. They are like, well, Nebuchadnezzar will not be very pleased with this. Mm-hmm. So he will come back and then he will kill us all. So we better run away. Yeah. So then this is uh, uh, the area is even is in even worse shape. This is um, Gil, my friend Gil, who has the history podcast of biblical proportions. He'll talks about this, and because this is an important event, because this is when the Jews, these Ju- these Judah, they're not really Jews at the time, you know, they're from Judah, but they're yes, you know, they're uh, Yahweh worshippers, and they go move to Egypt, right? Exactly, and the, the statement in the Bible is that Judah became an empty land. Mm-hmm. And I think that is what you're going to argue against now, right? No, I'm not arguing totally against it. But yeah, I mean, some stayed and some left, obviously. There was like factions. Gil will talk about the factions. Just like, and just like today, we have factions. They had factions. You had your Babylonian faction and you had your faction. It was like, we, we don't need them. We'll, you know, kill the governor. Not a good plan. And I know Jeremiah is involved in this, this wasn't he? I think Jeremiah goes to Israel. Doesn't Jeremiah go to Egypt with the... With the rest of them? I think so, yes. Yeah. And it, this is hard to date. It could have happened as early as 581. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But then there's a whole community. There's already some 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 Hebrews, you know, I, Yahweh worshippers and Jews, you could say, in Israel. but I'm Not Israel, sorry. Egypt. But now there's more. So now there's going to be a, a Jewish community in Egypt, like till today, really. Yeah, I guess this is uh, a result of Nebuchadnezzar that they don't really don't like him. So they go to his... Uh, to any state that can resist him, and Egypt can. Right, right. Remember that Babylonian and Egyptian relations are not at a high point. No, it's like a cold slash somewhat hot war. Yes, and maybe Nebuchadnezzar wanted to scorch the area around Jerusalem to prevent Egypt from taking over. Yeah, I, I concur with that statement because he did, the, the Assyrians didn't. I mean, the scholars do debate that, and the Syrians—they didn't scorch it. They wanted to, you know, they wanted to get make money from that area, but probably Babylonia and Nebuchadnezzar at that time—he he was powerful, but not powerful enough. And he also had enemies around him. You know, you have the Medians—they have a pretty big empire, which you'll probably talk about. And the Lydians are up there, and me, you know, the Medes—they got Cyrus coming up, so. It was hard to probably make, you know juggle all those places, and so instead of having them constantly rebel, you just burn them down. It's an interesting contrast to the Assyrians because the Assyrians wanted this area to launch an invasion of Egypt. Yeah, but Nebuchadnezzar wants this area gone, so Egypt cannot launch an invasion. Yeah, right, right. He also uh, somebody destroys Moab at this time. We talked about Moab in some mm-hmm. earlier episodes. Probably him. Yeah, and then there, there's really no more Philistines left, is there? I'm not sure. Yeah. Are they gone as well? Yeah. If this area is desolate. Yeah, this is the time. Oh. Yeah, yeah, this is it. He he destroys all those cities. Remember we had them under siege for all that time? And then, you know, they maybe survived, but Ascalon, Ekron, Acre, all these cities, they're pretty much gone. And this is, if you do like a whole study of the Philistines, you'll see like around after Nebuchadnezzar, there's, obviously there's people there, but they're no longer really Philistines. Wow. So he did a lot of damage. Yeah. Even compared to the destruction of Israel by the Assyrians. Yeah, completely. I mean, at least the Assyrians left Jerusalem. Yeah. Except for that angel of death. But in my opinion, they just, you know, they had enough. <laughs> they could have destroyed if they wanted to. But it, you know, even took took Nebuchadnezzar years to do it. So, so old Nebuchadnezzar now is um, 
on top of the world, ruling the Neo-Babylonian Empire with some scorched uh, Judah yeah. to protect his border. In 579, he might be 63 years old. He lived a while. Re- remember that Nebuchadnezzar was around as the crown prince when Assyria fell in 612. Yeah. And that is now 33 years ago. But he lives through this whole decade, right? Yeah. Yes. Uh, he's getting even older. Yeah. So I wanted to uh, give his full title here because I love those Mesopotamian titles. Let's have it. So this is Nebuchadnezzar's title as of 579. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, pious prince, the favorite of the god Marduk, exalted ruler who is the beloved of the god Nabu, the one who deliberates and acquires wisdom, the one who constantly seeks out the ways of their divinity, and reveres their dominion. The indefatigable... <laughs> what's that word? Indefatig- indefatigable. <laughs> indefatigable governor who is mindful of provisioning Esagil and Esida daily. And who constantly seeks out good things for Babylon and Borsippa. The wise and pious one who provides for Esagil and Esida. Foremost heir of Nabopolassar, king of Babylon, am I. That's him. That's a nice presentation. Very religious compared to the Assyrian uh, titles. Yeah, a little more, yes. Less scary. Less scary, true. But uh, but still similar, right? Not like It's not like a Chinese compared to a Babylonian or a Assyrian. It's pretty similar, but different. It's, in its length, it's very similar. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't. It's not as because well. His god isn't a war god as much as as much as um, Asher is, I guess. Uh, I will remind the listener that we have a music video on the Fan of History YouTube channel, where about Shalmaneser the Third, where his title runs. Uh, it scrolls by at the bottom of the video, and it's like over three minutes long. Wait, what is it on the YouTube channel Fan of History? Yes, there is a music video about Shalmaneser Shalmaneser the Third. Wow, who made that? Uh, one of my collaborators. Nice. Uh, yeah, I, I love it. We we have one on Asher Nasir Pal II as well. Oh, send the links to those. We'll put them on the. I'll put them in the show notes. Yes. You, before we move on from, and if we do, if you are moving on from Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, I think we. I don't. I think that by five seventy four, pretty sure actually, that the city of Tyre is not destroyed, but they. Babylonians, you know, Nebuchadnezzar and them come to an agreement where they will be a vassal of the Babylonians and that their navy will be part of the Bab- will be like the Babylonian navy. And that is a- important for the city of Carthage, right? Yes. Because Carthage is a tier, Tyre is their mother city and now they're kind of on their own. And once again, Carthage feeds on uh the Phoenician heartland getting conquered by empires. Yeah, you're right. So the Phoenicians flee to Carthage. Right. To remain free. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Right. And Cartish is a long way away if you're Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, yeah. He doesn't even want to go to Egypt. Right. Yeah, exactly. So that's a pretty interesting, that's a big, so yeah, like you said, they kind of scorched the earth over there in the Levant yeah. area. I would think that Nebuchadnezzar shares the Assyrian opinion about the Mediterranean. Yeah, I would think. That it's scary and right. uh, sort of the end of the world. Yes. We must also remember the Medes. The Medes. So pronounce the Median ruler's name, please. Astyages. Yes, the son of Syaxares. He's the son of Syaxares, yeah. I could say Astyages. How about that? <laughs> Astyages. I love it. He's still the king, and they rule a vast empire. But uh, the Medes have left no written record to reconstruct their history. <sighs> so we have to rely on the Assyrians mm -hmm. for older times, the Babylonians, Armenians, and Greeks, mm. as well as a few Iranian archaeological sites that sort of are claimed to be Median. Mm -hmm. And it's really Herodotus who speaks a lot about the Medes yeah. and their empire. But this has been questioned. Well, not, I wonder why. <laughs> but at this time, it seems that the Medes are actually quite powerful. Yeah, They did win against the Assyrians. They fought at the Battle of the Eclipse. And they have a lot of control of things, we think. But they have left a very scarce archaeological record. And they also play a big part in the Persian oh, yeah. mythos. Of course. So, so the Persians also have all the reasons in the world to play up the Medes. Yeah, I mean... But maybe this is an exaggeration. Maybe. Yeah, I hear you. I was listening to your other, some of the old podcasts and before I was on them, and I, I can't remember the episode, but it was you, you introduced the Medes. It was probably in the 800s. I think it was. Yeah, it was in the 800s, yeah. yes. And you said, like, they were new, you know, and it was like, I think you said, kill the Medes and steal their horses. <laughs> well, yes, they, it was the Assyrians attacked the Medes like five times per episode yeah. at some point. Yeah. So, I mean, it would, so my point is, I guess it would seem logical that eventually they would kind of coalesce into some sort of defensive type of thing where they, they did, you know, they had five tribes and then, according to Herodotus, and then they assembled into this median, you know, polity, I guess you could say. Th that is what Herodotus says. Yeah. And until the end of the last century, like late 20th century, everybody thought that the, the destruction of the Assyrian Empire made the median empire appear. Mm -hmm. But it has now been questioned first by... Modern historian, oh, this is a good name to pronounce, Helene Sansisi Verdenburg. Ooh. She 
criticizes the asserted imperial system and style of the Medes, and she says that it has noticeable contrasts with other imperial kingdoms of the ancient Near East, mm-hmm. yeah. and uh, that we use almost only Greek sources to construct Median history, and we have ignored ancient Near Eastern sources. Mm-hmm. But she in turn has been questioned about uh, by uh, many modern scholars. So in 2001, there was actually an international symposium to review all accessible sources. A sort of review of median history Mm. and what we can actually agree upon. (laughs) Have you heard the quote, history is just the lies we all can agree on? Mm. No, but I like that one. Yeah. So that was pretty much a conference where, okay, which lies will we believe in? I'm writing that down. It's from, it's from, I heard it from Dan Carlin, of course. Oh, yeah, he's great. So this conference didn't reach a conclusion. They didn't get consensus. <laughs> they had a lot of fights with scissors and staplers in that room. <laughs> Probably. But it was generally agreed that there was no proof of the existence of a median empire. And therefore, it should be considered a hypothesis. That's interesting. So the Median Empire, as we have described it, might be a myth. All right. Well, I have a couple things to say about that. I have two things. First of all, I'm going to say that symposium is 2000. Could you imagine being in that hotel? I'm here for the Mead conference. Yes. (laughs) I am the Median Empire. (laughs) I mean, it's not like the, you know, it's not like the, uh, you know, the, I don't know, the big international wine show showed up there at Padua. It was the Median Conference. We're going to discuss if the Median Empire existed. <laughs> I bet there was a lot of people like cosplaying me. <laughs> I know, right? So that, Maybe that. trying to eat Median food. Oh, maybe they will. Oh, oh, be careful what you ask for. There you've eaten Har- Harbogus's son. <laughs> <laughs> True. Yeah, they had a cake. Like They made a cake and it looked like a basket with hands and feet coming out of it. Oh, isn't that funny? Oh, gosh. So, but the Persians are around. We we cannot uh, question the existence of the upcoming Persian Empire. And they really want to claim that they took over the Median Empire. I mean, here's... Which they haven't done yet. No, but here's what I was thinking, too, though. Like, it probably wasn't an... Because this is, like, more of, like, mountainous area, and there wasn't as many cities and things like that. So it was probably more, like... You know, they didn't have, like, an imperial system and all these roads and all that like the Persians would. But probably, like, kind of sort of controlled things, I'm thinking. And my other thinking was that, like, since the Assyrians beat them up so many times, and then they went in and what Ashurbanipal did in Elam, which was kind of like the Median cosmopolitan area, sort of. They weren't really Medes, but they're sort of that's their influence area. And then they destroyed it. I, I would think that the Medes would be... Like, maybe they're not like an empire, as you'd say, but they still must have had some control over, you know, this this area. And they must have also, I mean, a lot of people were dead, right? All these people who are fighting with each other, they're dead. So you just sort of get to the point where there's less people and like, we have to, you know, less like, there's people, but less rulers. So these chiefs and rulers would think that these, we're getting slaughtered, you know? And then they get together and destroy the Assyrians. This is kind of a good thing, right? We sort of. Instead of killing each other all the time, we should sort of get along a little bit. That's my theory. Yeah, so the, the Medes could be a pretty loose confederacy of different people, such as the Persians. Correct. But the Persians are ruling from Anshan, and their leader is Cambyses. Yes. 
And according to Herodotus, he was a man of good family and quiet habits. And he acknowledged the overlordship of Astyages of the Medes then. Yeah. And he was married. We talked about her before. Princess Mandane of Media. Yep. And uh, Astyages chose Cambyses to be his son-in-law. Because he was no threat to the Median throne. Right, that's what he thought. We talked about that also. Correct. We also have another powerful player that we remember from the Battle of the Eclipse. Lydia. Yeah. Ruled by Croesus himself. The rich Croesus. Yes. And Croesus is... Uh, there are many stories yeah. about him, but he will be a star player in the later decades. Yeah. Uh, he will be alive for a while. But he is extremely rich. And we have Greek uh, writers noting his gifts at Delphi. Oh, right. So he's sort of turning his attention westwards to his appreciating what is happening in Greece. Yeah, right. And he wants to be a part of it. Yeah, it's sort of a thing with the Greeks, isn't it? The Romans, the yeah. Sicilians, the Etruscans, the Lydians. Everybody likes the Greeks. Yes, until they don't. Right, exactly. <laughs> Do you want to talk about the Ishtar Gate? Yeah, I do want to talk about it a little bit because that's a really famous um, gate. If you've ever seen it, it's like these blue stones, right? And it has the lion yeah. and it has a dragon. And what is the other thing it has? And it's built in 575 BC. Yes, it is. In Babylon. Because Nebuchadnezzar, as a Mesopotamian ruler, loves to build things that will remain after he's gone to remind people of his awesomeness. Yes, it was a little interesting thing to say about that because um, there's a they found a record just like a, of of a family that had to provide bricks for it, and they're not sure if they had to provide them because of the corvi or if they were like a like a company, right? But the reason I mention that is, but the bricks is that at the same time when the Jews were in captivity in Babylon, a lot of parts of Exodus was written, which is their captivity supposed captivity in Egypt. And there's a part where the Pharaoh supposedly gets, um, well, they come to the Pharaoh and they, they well, the Pharaoh changes something. He, his requirements for bricks is more. He wants more bricks. And they, they come to him and say, we need more straw to build the bricks. But instead of being nice, Pharaoh says, screw you and we're going to increase your need for bricks. But according to my friend Gil from the podcast of Biblical Proportions, that is a reference to Nebuchadnezzar requiring more bricks from the Jews that were there. So that's why I probably need all these bricks because he's building all this stuff. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Yes. You're exactly. Sounds highly likely. And um, these bricks were fired. So they were like, they weren't, they look like, you know, the blue stone, but they're really just blue dyed sort of and fired. Yeah, kind of fake bricks. Oh, fake bricks. Um, so yeah, that's the Ishtar gate. That's where they do the. Um, New Year's celebration. You go through the Ishtar Gate, and then you walk down the path, and the Ishtar Gate is the, you know, the, one of the entrances to Babylon. Oh, I remember. It's bulls, lions, and dragons. And each one of those represents something. So nice. uh, the bulls represent Adad. The dragons represent Marduk. The um, other one, the lions represent Ishtar. And also interesting, though, because then they go down the path, the way... So they started probably building this path even longer because they've excav- excavated bricks with Sennacherib's name on it. Yeah. Oh. So that's not in the gate. That's in the path. But then the gate was found by the Germans, I think. And then, yeah, and they took it. <laughs> I think they took a lot of it. And um, 
Yeah, there's. I have can, it written. Can here you where see you it? Could see it, but I know where you could go see it right away. You could see, and I saw it at the Glyptotheket, the museum in Copenhagen. Yeah, there's one there. You should go check it out. Ah, oh, yeah, nice. Um, there's a lion there. Did you notice that Nebuchadnezzar mentioned Borsippa as well in his title? Yeah, I did notice that when you said that. Yeah, the ancient city of wisdom. And uh, he seems to be quite obsessed with that because mm-hmm. he's building a lot in Borsippa as well. He restores the city temple, that's the Isida, uh, which is dedicated to the god Nabu, of course. the god of wisdom. So he's working a lot. He's also uh, fortif- uh, building fortifications in Borsippa. As well as restoring Babylon's walls. His, uh, this is his second favorite city. But his main focus is, of course, old Babylon. Well, I think they all needed the help because the, with the Assyrians did a lot of bad things in Bersippa and Babylon. And, you know, I shouldn't say bad, but there was there have a lot of wars going on in that area. He's also building a very interesting work. Oh. The Median Wall. So he's building a large defensive structure to defend Babylonia against invasion from the north, from his uh, allies, the Medes, that I don't think he considers allies anymore. Yeah. But they cooperated to destroy the Assyrians, but now Nebuchadnezzar fears the same fate for Babylon. So he builds the Median Wall. It's complete as this time, I think. And... uh, so he fortifies the cities and this wall to like channel the attack ah, to a point where he could if that I needed he it. could win the war. That's important. He's also building a royal canal, yeah, linking the Euphrates to the Tigris, which is the first time anybody does this. But he doesn't complete it. No, he doesn't complete it. But boy, they say that once that's done, it just changes all the agricultural situation down there in Babylon, Babylonia. That's probably why everything is a desert at this yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, this really. I mean, we know that it was irrigated. That's how we did that. You know, we know that they irrigated Babylon, but this was really, really important because it's more, I guess it's like a big, opens up more areas. But it's really laying the foundation for long-lasting empire in the Neo-Babylonian Empire. So he's thinking of all the dangers and how the empire could end. But I don't think he gives much time to thinking about Obviously. the Persians, <laughs> which is the real danger here. But uh, Carthage is on her own from now on. They are. And then we have an event in Egypt in 570. Oh, I did not know. This is uh, something quite unheard of in Egypt. All right. Remember who is Pharaoh? Uh, A priest. Yes. She's the fourth king of the 26th dynasty. Okay. According to classical historians, Apris actually campaigned in the Levant, took Sidon, and terrified the cities of Phoenicia, but uh, if he did, they were not submitted for very wow. long, as we know that Nebuchadnezzar has the power in the north. That's interesting, because that just goes to show what we were talking about before, why you do a scorched earth policy, if they actually were getting involved up there. Oh, maybe the scorched earth policy just worked against the Egyptians. Yeah, it probably would. Well, we wants to take over just nothing. Uh, we also have some have some Dorian Greeks who are not obeying the pharaoh. Really? Uh, yeah, they are working on their own projects in uh, invading Libya. Oh. So Apris sends soldiers to Libya to protect it from, from the Dorian Greeks. Oh, wow. But he loses. I would not be surprised. Uh, Egyptians and Greeks, Greeks usually kill them. His army is uh, defeated. And... Uh, 
it's composed then of indigenous troops and foreign mercenaries, probably other Greeks. Probably. And when the defeated army returns home, bad things happen. So the foreign mercenaries are probably not paid and a lot of them have died. So uh, they start fights with mm. the indigenous troops. Ah. And uh, the Egyptians are upset with uh, the pharaoh. Oh, for bringing in all these Greeks and starting this war and having all these problems. Yes. So they want, uh, they, they decide to support Amasis instead. Okay. He is uh, an Egyptian general. Oh. Who invaded Nubia back in 592 under Samtik II. Yeah, I remember that. Okay. And uh, when Amasis realizes that's the support of most of the Egyptians, he declares himself pharaoh. Huh. Which is pretty bold. That's not the way it used to work in the Old Kingdom. Yeah. And Apreas then has rebellious foreign mercenaries who will not obey him. And Egyptian soldiers who will also not obey him. So nobody's obeying him. Hmm. So he seeks refuge in a foreign country. Oh, which one? And guess which one? I don't know. Babylon. Get the F out of here. Yes. But this is in 570. He flees Egypt in 570. So we'll get back to him in the 560s. A priest does. Yes. Okay. A priest flees to Egypt, uh, flees to Babylonia. Oh, wow. That is interesting. Amosis is now the pharaoh. Oh, wow. By a coup. Wow. Which is like not the way. He can probably find a, a daughter of a priest to marry. Yeah. To, because I think that's the succession. That's the old way of doing succession. Yeah. You have it's through the daughters. You have to marry the daughter. Oh, okay. If you're a son of the pharaoh and you want to be the king, you have to marry your sister. <laughs> Which is where that came from. Ah, I gotcha. So, and of course, this is uh, not entirely clear. And Herodotus says something else about these events. What does he say? He says that uh, Apries uh, doesn't flee to Babylonia, but is captured by Amasis. Oh. And treated well. Hmm. But those Egyptians that put Amasis on the throne, they are upset. Says you can't treat that guy well. He destroyed our kingdom almost. Hmm. Factions. So Amasis, like, uh, here he is. Do whatever you want to him. I don't care. Yeah. And then the Egyptians uh, strangled him. Oh, that's according to Herodotus. Yes. So uh, maybe that uh, destroyed the uh, the uh, <laughs> suspense before the 560s to see what happens when he returned from Babylon. Because ah. it's only in one of the stories he returns from Babylon. All right. But he is now in Babylon in our main narrative. Okay. Yeah. He's heard from again, though. So it's not like taken to a, being taken to Nineveh. No. He is... Um, <laughs> But remember that Nebuchadnezzar wasn't that interested in Egypt, but now he has the pharaoh on his side. The guy who is legitimately the pharaoh yeah, yeah. is now asking for Nebuchadnezzar's help. And he's probably like, you know, when I had to burn down all those cities and I could, if I didn't, you know, I'd have those cities now. <laughs> now, now I have no supplies yeah. <laughs> when I go to Egypt. <laughs> but I have the pharaoh. That Maybe that's worth something. Yeah. Maybe he had to do all that business to the... Levant to get the pharaohs on his side, but I, I'm just imagining the Egyptians fighting the Greeks. Like I could just see these Egyptians. Like you always see pictures of them. I don't know if it's true, but you know you see their weapons and they have bow and they have bows and arrows and they usually have those curved swords. And we know they don't have a lot of metal, 
I mean, they do, but, you know, they have enough metal. It's not like they're using stone tools, but it's not like they have... They have a problem with iron. Yeah, they don't have armor, I would think. A lot of armor anyway. Problem with iron and heat. Yeah. And then you have these Greeks just, like, loaded up with armor and so and long spears. And I just feel like, wow. And, uh, yeah, we are way past the Egyptian prime. Uh, the Ever since we began this podcast, things have been going downhill for Egypt. Yeah. And we talked about the Nubians taking over, the Libyans taking over, the Assyrians taking over. And now maybe it's time for the Babylonians to actually take over. Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe somebody else will, though. Yes. Uh, so, Nebuchadnezzar survives this decade. Okay. So let's talk about his uh, family. Let's do that. Because things will become super complicated in Babylonia when Nebuchadnezzar is gone. You had these two really powerful rulers, his father, Nabopolassar, and himself. And that's why things are looking so good for the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Uh-huh. But things will become super messy when he's gone. Yeah. So we have to talk a bit about his family. Oh, okay, yeah. We know six sons of Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, yeah, we know he can't make it much longer than the next decade, right? We're not giving any spoilers, but it's got, he'd be really old. Uh, he's getting quite old for a guy from uh, Mesopotamia in this this period. Correct. So six sons, most of them, that is four of them, are attested very late in Nebuchadnezzar's reign. So they could have been the product of second marriage. Oh, yeah. Or, uh, and probably born very late, possibly after his known daughters. So the daughters are also important. But two sons are older. And they are Marduk, ne- Nadin, Ahi, and Iana Shara Usur. So Marduk, Nadin, Ahi, and Iana Shara Usur. Okay. They are the older sons. And uh, we actually have a poem written by Marduk, Nadin, Ahi. Oh. That uh, was written while he was in jail as the crown prince. Hmm. Uh, which is an interesting story that we'll come to. Okay. And we heard of this guy already in 601 BC. Oh, we did. He's an adult at the time. He was in charge of his own land, helping his father. It's a legal document. Oh, okay. So, so this is... I think I've heard of this. This is probably Nebuchadnezzar's firstborn son. Okay. If not even his eldest child. And he is thus the legitimate heir but, you know, Nebuchadnezzar could do the Assyrian thing and give it to the, the better son. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He must be getting old, too. Yeah, he's, he's not young. Right. So he was already an adult in 601 BC. Yeah. And we'll uh, learn more about him in uh, uh, the next decade. Okay. But I, I'll spoil it. He is a royal prince in a document from 563 BC. Okay. Where he, one of his sermons is buying something and... It's noted in the document that he is the servant of the royal prince Marduk Nadin Ahi. I gotcha. Eana Shara Usser, then, the other elder son, is named as a royal prince among 16 people in a document at Uruk from 587. Okay. Uh, where he is receiving barley for the sick. <clears throat> Basically, we got so, receipts. We have some old receipts written on stone. <laughs> oh, so then we have the four younger sons. They are Amel Marduk, mm-hmm. originally named Nabushum Ukin. Oh, that sounds like someone else we know, Shamashum Ukin. 
Yes. And uh, maybe we'll hear more about him. So you will uh, remember this guy. Remember that name. Amel Marduk. And the first document mentioning him is a document from 566 BC. And talk about that document in the 560s. Okay. Uh, then we have son number four. Confusingly also named Marduk. Mm. But he's Marduk Shum Usur. He's named as a royal prince in 564 and 562 when his scribe receives payment in the temple. Oh, I love these receipts. Thank God for their own stone receipts. I'll take my receipt in stone, please. <laughs> the fifth son is Musebik Marduk, named as a royal prince in 563. And the last one is also named Marduk, Marduk Nadin Shumi, who's a royal prince in contract tablet from 563. But the important ones are the two elder ones, Marduk yeah. Nadin Ahi and Iana Sharosur, and the oldest of the younger princes, Amel Marduk. Amel Marduk. We also have three daughters, so Nebuchadnezzar got around. His first daughter is Katshaya. Katshaya. She's attested in several economic documents as the king's daughter. And her name is kind of unusual. But it probably says something about Kassite. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, which is interesting, as we normally consider Nebuchadnezzar to be Chaldean. Yeah, right. But we talked about that before, that that is not clear at all. Uh, Kachaya is owning stuff in Uruk. And she's living in Uruk. Okay. And uh, <laughs> She's living it up in Uruk. She's the king's daughter. She's like Putin's daughter living in Britain. <laughs> oh, Uruk is still in Babylonia. Oh, she's in Babylonia. Yes. Okay. So Uruk is one of the old cities. Oh, right. But she's not in the city, I mean, though. She's in no, Babylonia, yeah. but she's not in Babylon. Yeah, she's probably uh, helping the king control Uruk. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then we have a guy called Neriglissar, who will appear in our story. Neriglissar. Okay. And he marries a daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, but we don't know which daughter. Okay. But it is probably Kachaya. Okay. The eldest daughter. As the eldest daughter is the most prized daughter, of course. Okay. She was the hot one. No. <laughs> oh, she's, she's the one with the most heritage. I know, I know. <laughs> uh, we don't know who is the hottest of the daughters. No, no. The second daughter is Inin Etirat. She's the king's daughter in a document in 564, where she grants the status of a free man to a slave. Oh, she's the nice one. The document is written in Babylon. But this Inin Etirat name is very Uruk. So she's probably also living in Uruk. You could totally make a document, like like a, a historical fiction about her. Yes. You know, and her slave, and maybe their lovers, and all this stuff. And there's a million things. I'm going to ask Chad Cheap. The last daughter is uh, Bao Asitu, who is the owner of a piece of real estate in an economic document. Uh, people debate how you will... Uh, how you should write this name oh. or pronounce it. But we'll, we'll go with Bao Asito. I'll go with that too. And one interpretation of her name is that Bao is the physician. So maybe she was some kind of doctor. Mm. And this document is also written at Uruk. So it seems that Uruk is the place where Nebuchadnezzar puts all his daughters. Oh, okay. There's temples there too. But uh, remember that he has a lot of connections to Uruk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is also possible that one of these daughters, we don't know which one, marries a high official that we already mentioned, 
Nabonidus. Yeah, I wonder about him. We know about he's a, he's somebody going to be important. He will, and he was possibly at the Battle of the Eclipse. Oh, okay. That's when we mention him. So, but we don't know which daughter. Oh, okay. But he is definitely going to be important. Uh, we also have uh, Nabonidus has a son, Belshazzar, who appears in the Book of Daniel in the Bible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Belshazzar. Belshazzar, yeah. He is uh, of Nebuchadnezzar's family. Isn't that the name of the the ghost in, in, in Ghostbusters? Wasn't he like Belshazzar or something like that? I don't remember. Yeah, I think he was. <laughs> something, it was definitely some Babylonian name, like Belshazzar or something. We'll get to him, right? We will. Oh, good, because that's a good story. And we'll leave all the important Jews as captives in Babylon for this decade. They okay. Are, they are there. They're thinking a lot about their religion. Yeah. And uh, maybe now is the time when they actually start to formulate their religion and become mm-hmm. really like setting up the rules. But you talked about that. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably that faction type of thing, too, because now you only have like one faction stuck there. And all sort of the factions sort of. Yeah. I, I have a little about India as well. Oh, you do? Yes. You're the Very best. Little. All right. Well, let's have it. Because, as you know, India does not have writing yet. No. So a lot of the claims about Indian history are extremely hard to verify Yeah. at this time. But we have the... Okay, now I have to pronounce something. Oh, and in English as well. So in the old Sanskrit in English, maybe you can recognize this. Yeah. Mahayanapadas. That sounds about right. It's probably like, because it has, it, that's probably how we would pronounce it, but it does have that like line over the A, so it could be Mahajanapadas. Mahajanapadas. Yeah, Mahajanapadas. Were 16 kingdoms or oligarchic republics that existed in ancient India in the 6th to 4th centuries BC. Okay. And this is a period of urbanization, and it's regarded as a major turning point in early Indian history. Mm-hmm. As this was the period where India's first large cities arose, for a very long time, there hadn't been large cities since the Indus Valley civilization. That's a long time. That's a super long time. And now people are thinking about things in India as well. So we'll run into Buddhism zone yeah. and Jainism. Yeah. Which challenged the old Vedic religion. Yeah. Even Hinduism takes its form, I believe, now, right? And the Vedas start to kind of get written down, that kind of thing, or at least standardized, maybe? Yes, it's a time of structure as for the Jews in Babylon. So people start to start to put things, oh, they can't write, but they, they start to agree on things. And these ancient traditions yeah. are now being formalized. It's sort of like... It's amazing. It's sort of like yeah. the Iliad who came down for so long as an oral tradition, and then Homer put it down. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. The 500s is such a religious uh, century, right? You you got all this going on in India. You have stuff going on in China, and it lasts till today. And then the Jews right in the freaking Bible. (laughs) Yeah, so the the 6th century BC is uh, one of the most important centuries for the sort of shaping the foundation for the modern world. For religion, for sure, yeah. We know that two of the Mahajanapadas were probably oligarchic republics. Okay. So, so ruled not by king, but kings were present in some form in all the others. 
Okay. And in ancient Buddhist texts, we have frequent references to 16 great kingdoms and republics in this area. And this will be the setting where Buddha arrives. Yeah. And And they all speak different languages, I think, but Sanskrit is the one that they write the Vedas down in, I guess, right? Yes, but not yet. Not yet. Okay. So archaeologists consider this period in India as the northern black Polish ware culture. Okay. But that's uh, that's quite boring compared to the Mahajanapadas. Yeah, Mahajanapadas. Mahajanapadas. <laughs> and that's yeah. all I have for India for this decade. And the Maharabada. But we do need help. Yes. So if we have any listener who is knowledgeable in Indian prehistory, yeah. almost... At this point, we we are very interested in learning more and finding great books about it. Absolutely. Hopefully not in Sanskrit. No. And I can I would add, if let's just say somebody's listening to this and they don't feel like they are a great source of Indian knowledge, but maybe you have like links to articles or websites or YouTube videos or books, I would also appreciate that because it's... it is difficult when you don't have much information and we're trying to do a decade by decade and, you know, I like to... Even if we do a couple decades at a time, I, I, it's, I feel like our podcast is so different because we do the whole world. And what's happening in India while this is happening in Babylon and in China, we do like to try to get it. So anything you can help us with, we'd appreciate it. Yes. And uh, there are so many parts of the world where we know very, very little. Yeah. Like the Olmecs. I've tried to return to them so many times, but uh, we don't know that much. Well, I'll give a plug to our other podcast, What's New in History?, that um, I have an episode half recorded myself about a LIDAR study in, in the Mayan area. And it's actually around, this is a pre-classical uh, Maya time, which is like 2500 to 2500 BC to maybe 250 AD. And amazing studies, amazing um, find, I should say. So we're going to talk about that. But then, like, I don't know, like, what happened in 575 BC in, you know, Guatemala? Huh. We don't know. Pinpoint it. Or in Scandinavia. <laughs> or that as well. I have a bunch of What's New in History ready for that too. Or in Congo. Or there. But anything you guys know, we'll take it. We, we're fairly sure that nothing happened in Antarctica. <laughs> I don't think so. I think there was a giant UFO buried under there and the Atlanteans had a spot there. Oh, that was in 572, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anyway, we've gone too far. This decade ends here. It does. It's time for the 560s. I think you're right. I don't think we have anything more in the 570s, so we're going to start with the 560s next. See you then. Maybe we should talk about Facebook and we should. Patreon. And like I said, check our Facebook page out, our Patreon, Fan of History slash Patreon. A couple bucks an episode. We'd really appreciate it. Help us pay for our... Re- I mean, I, it costs me $100 a year just for the academia.edu you know, subscription. I get a lot of good papers from there, so... Anything you can give us, we take it. Please do. Yeah. Until next time. Until next time. Cheers. Cheers. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash fan of history. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time.